Shark Tank, the show, is nothing like how venture capital works, right? I've done a number of deals with Mark Cuban. The way Mark acts on the show and the way Mark acts in a normal venture deal are different. I often say Shark Tank is as much like traditional VC as the show ER is like a normal emergency room, right? They are both made for TV drama and you've got to be really careful what you learn from made for TV (laughs) drama. I would not feel comfortable walking into emergency room and say like, how much medical school experience do you have? None, but I've watched every episode of ER. I feel completely prepared to take care of you. (laughs) No one would feel good about that. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development as businesses aim for long-term success. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sofion CTO. If you're looking for additional information around new product development or corporate innovation, sign up for Sofian's newsletter where we share news and industry best practices monthly. The fastest way to do this is to go to sofian.com that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com and click the sign up and stay informed box. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. Pleased to have a, another guest this week, a very interesting guest. I'm joined by Sean Amarati, and he's a distinguished service professor at Carnegie Mellon University, their Tepper School of Business. But teaching is only one of the things he does. He's really uh, co-founder and director of the Carnegie Mellon Startup Lab. So we'll talk about that. And he's also very active in entrepreneurship. Uh, He sits on uh, the board of a a venture capitalist investment fund and just very active in a lot of different things. Sean, welcome to the show. Paul, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Where are we talking to you from today? I'm in Sarasota, Florida right now, Paul. So... I split my time between Pittsburgh and Sarasota, and uh, if you spent winters in Pittsburgh, that makes a bit more sense, probably. (laughs) Yeah, but the teaching time is in the winter, isn't it? Yeah, so I go back and forth kind of through both of them. My wife and and kids stay in Florida year-round, and I I kind of get back at least on the weekends, although for a year and a half now uh, with COVID, I've been, been teaching from Sarasota as well, which has not been bad. Does it look like it's going to stay that way next semester, or is it going to open up more back to being in person? It's starting to open back up, which is great. It's great for the students to have that yeah. experience. Well, let me ask you first, uh, Sean, you, you wrote a book called The Science of Growth. Tell us about that book. It actually started as a course on campus and then became in kind of a, a research project around around that course. And then kind of took on a life of its own and ultimately became a book. But the the prompt behind the science of growth really was this question of, well, what comes after a startup achieves product market fit? And I'm pretty sure most of your audience will know this, but product market fit is just a term that means you have a good product that solves a real problem in a market that's large enough that you can build the kind of business that you envision around that, right? And uh, methodologies like Steve Blank's customer development model or Eric Reese's lean startup methodology, in my mind, are really effective at going from idea to product market fit. But the question that we set out to ask ourselves was, how do you go from product market fit to scaled up? Yeah, that's a gap in a lot of writing out there. So uh, 
Yeah, people can find that book. I, I was interested to see that book was published in both Korean and Mandarin. That's, that was a, quite an achievement. How'd you, how'd you have that happen? So it, it was a kind of surprisingly popular book. I think surprising to me, certainly, and surprising to the publisher. And so ultimately, yeah, it was translated into to Korean and Mandarin. It's also been translated into an audio version for, for Audible and and it's been it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And I, I think the real reason behind it, and this I think would resonate with a lot of your audience, is when we wrote the book, we thought that the audience for the book would just be what I would call now traditional startups. You know, two, three, four people going through a startup accelerator, trying to raise some venture capital and scale up. And that audience definitely has purchased the book. It, the content has resonated with them. But at least as significant as that audience has been what I've later gone to term corporate entrepreneurs. So these are people inside a lot of the places like the groups that you work with, right? Doing R&D, doing innovation, new product development, where they're trying not to just make incremental improvements to their products, but transformational improvements to their product portfolio. And a lot of them are going and looking for startup resources with the goal of those resources helping them uh, figure out how to do this kind of transformative innovation. And the, the thing from a book perspective, and this is, just, this is just math, but it was kind of not obvious math to me until I went through it. You know, when a startup buys the book, they buy maybe one copy and pass it around and two sure. copies. When a Fortune 500 buys the book, they buy like a thousand copies or 2000 yeah. copies. Yeah. And so the, the book just kind of took off as all of these companies started buying it and distributing it. And it really got me very, very interested in this topic that I know your firm's been, you know, looking at for literally decades here, but this, this topic of how do you do entrepreneurship inside an established corporation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been very active, our company in the whole process from idea to launch. Uh, so development is just a piece of that. But I don't know that we ever put the label entrepreneurship on it. And that is a really interesting way of looking at it, especially if you're a very large company. How do you get that spirit of a startup, right? Yeah. Is this only for large companies or small companies? I mean, what? No. So I believe every company needs that entrepreneurial culture in them. And, and I think what you're saying is actually part of actually why we created the corporate startup lab at Carnegie Mellon, right? So, so there are lots of definitions of entrepreneurship and, and lots of definitions of startups. I think both of them are worth kind of defining as, as I, I use this just for context, right? So when I say entrepreneur, I mean people who look out into the world, see things that aren't the way they should be and build products and services that make the world the way it ought to be. When I say startup, to me, that's a subset of entrepreneurship. So everybody who's in a startup is an entrepreneur, but not necessarily everybody who's an entrepreneur is doing a startup. Startups are projects that start small with the goal of them becoming big. And what's interesting is when you think, so you know, your, your corner coffee shop that wants to just be one coffee shop forever, I would argue that's absolutely an entrepreneur, but that entrepreneur is not doing kind of startup work, right? He or she aspires right. to run that coffee shop really well. When you think about the Tesla in your driveway, 
or the iPhone in your pocket, I would argue both of those are startup projects, right? Those were small teams that started something small with the goal of it really changing how the world works. Now, important thing for corporations, large corporations and small, is the only type of entrepreneurship that's really relevant for them is startup entrepreneurship because it's the only part of entrepreneurship that moves the needle. You know, right. you don't want to invest millions of dollars in something that will result in millions of dollars of revenue, right? You want to invest millions of dollars in the things that could completely transform your, your business. And so that's what we've been looking at. And, and I think what a lot of these established companies are trying to do is they're trying to go and say like, okay, here's how this two-person startup works. How do we apply those lessons inside our company of 10,000? And some right. lessons apply one-to-one -one and some lessons don't. And so that's what we've been kind of, that's what we've been kind of looking at and sort of, again, what put me on this journey was frankly, their customer feedback to me, right? They were buying my book and I was trying to figure out how they were using it. Yeah. But you were obviously interested and involved in entrepreneurship kind of before this. There was things that happened that caused you to write that book, right? So how did you first get into this area? So when I wrote the book and, and before that, right, so I had been an entrepreneur, I had started and sold a number of companies. Probably most notable was the company called Mspoke that I was a CEO and co-founder of. Mspoke today has been acquired by LinkedIn. We sold it to, to LinkedIn when I was the CEO. And today, if you log into your LinkedIn profile and you see that ribbon of news or you get the emails from LinkedIn, that's our technology. Did that, did a couple other startups and then came back to Carnegie Mellon to be on the faculty uh, as an adjunct and then sort of slowly spent more and more time at CMU. But when I came back to Carnegie Mellon originally, my goal was make everybody an entrepreneur. And at that point, I meant entrepreneur in the very traditional sense of the word. It was only, it's really been only over the last four or five years that I've started getting really interested in this idea of everybody in these large companies seeing themselves as an entrepreneur. And it's part of a bigger goal I have for entrepreneurship education, which is, really sort of more evenly distributing entrepreneurship across society. I think one concern I have about entrepreneurship education today is it's it's relegated to a very small segment of the population that go to a very small number of schools and those entrepreneurs solve problems for those kind of students. And, and one of those schools is Carnegie Mellon, so we certainly benefit from that, but it's important I think that everybody take part in this because if entrepreneurship is making the world the way the world ought to be, then it's really important that all of us are weighing in on what the world should look like, not just 25 year olds who went to a really good engineering school and are solving problems that yeah. their parents solved for them before. That's a fantastic objective. That's the right kind of objective, especially that's an entrepreneur's objective in a way, right? I mean, it's, you're not looking to start up around it. You're looking to change the world a little bit. I think that's fantastic. Sean, this need, this desire in these companies to achieve these kind of ways of working, the ways of thinking, the cultural parts of it, does it have to be driven top, to, especially the larger companies? What kind of support do they need from the C-suite? Is it is it that type of thing that it comes top down or is it bottom up or how, how does it work? So we've seen it work both ways, right? But I think how you make it work is a little different depending on kind of if the impetus is top down or bottom up. So for let's start with the the bottom up, right? And I think this will this will resonate with a, a lot of the people that are that are working with you because 
my impression as I've gotten to know your firm better and better and understand your software better and better is that whereas we at the Corporate Startup Lab have gotten very focused on part of the product portfolio, specifically the transformative part of the product portfolio, you guys help with that and all of the rest of the product development process as well, right? It's kind of a, a holistic view of everything going on around the product. Would you say that's fair, Paul? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Sean. Yeah. And, and so to me, when I think about that, I actually think this is hugely important for those who are trying to make this happen bottoms up. Because what I always tell people who are trying to, to create this catalyst for this change in the culture from the bottom up is you need to put some wins on the board. And in my mind, the way you put these wins on the board is that you segment out that quadrant of your products that are truly transformational. So let's, in your mind, just draw a two by two matrix, right? And say, is this my current, is this using kind of current IP or new product, new technology, right? And is this serving my current customers or serving a brand new customer segment, right? And the point is, if you, if you think of that as a two by two, as you move up to the top corner of that, right? Then what you're looking at is the more transformational initiatives. And, and I would encourage folks in, that are working with you who, who are responsible for this total portfolio of product improvements, right? To think about their projects against that two by two matrix, against that, you know, how core adjacent or transformational is the projects that you're working on. And it's important to do all of those, right? I'm not saying right. don't make those core product improvements. That's really important. But what I'm saying is when you get to that top quadrant, treat those ideas a little bit different because they have a different risk and a different return profile. And if you're trying to change this culture from the bottom up, what you want to make sure you're doing is having enough initiatives in that top quadrant, in that transformational quadrant, that you can have some that are successful which then make this, this goal of changing the, con the conversation around, okay, here's what transformational innovation looks like at company XYZ. You have examples that you can point to where it's like, yeah, what we did there for that solution, for that customer base, we wanna do more of that. And now you have kind of vocabulary and terminology to do that. And I think part of the first step is just actually mapping where all your products fall on that continuum. And I think having a single, kind of pane of glass view into what's going on there is a is a great first step to that. And luckily, if they've been working with you, they already have that at their fingertips. That's really great advice, Sean. I mean, I don't know that our listeners have had the chance yet to think about it along those two axes. Yeah, they have a portfolio, they're going to do these things, but then to recognize, okay, these were the ones in that upper right, the new news. And when they are out in the market, when they have success, be able to go back and say, well, you know, we had identified and chosen these for this reason. Because I think a lot of people are not sure how to get funding to do something extra or special, how to get support from above. You know, companies have their strategies and their budgets and their, their plans. And sometimes it's very difficult for people who are in, in innovation to be able to get that. But if this is innovation they're going to do anyhow, I think, uh, Profiling it that way is a great suggestion. And they need to treat them differently, right? Yeah. Because the risk profile is different, right? So, uh, you know, I'm going to overly simplify this only because 
we're doing this over audio and we don't have a whiteboard in front of us and we're trying to generalize this for all of your audience. Right, but right, right. Let's imagine that you have two product development projects that you have going on. And I'm gonna sort of make this extreme just for illustration purposes. So one is to change a button on your software package from gray to light blue. And one is to build a brand new module for your, uh, for a brand new customer segment that's adjacent to your, to your core market, right? If I said to you, what's the probability that you achieve success, that you yeah. achieve what you set out to for both of those projects, the probabilities are just completely different. And so, you know, when you're looking at things like this, then to actually look at the change the button from gray to blue, the same way you look at the probability of building this new module is just absurd. They're different. Now, the, the return is different as well, but you, you need to treat them different. You need to value them different. You need to budget for them different. Yeah. And actually where you're going there with like getting budget to me is, is actually a really good example of, I think, where companies lean too heavily on what they see traditional startups do. And this is actually a good illustration too on the top down and, and yeah. cautions on the top down side, right? So the way I often hear about top down initiatives to make people more innovation innovative or make their company more innovative goes something like this. Our CEO flipped his TV on and he'd been watching CNBC earlier in the day. And when he flipped it on at night, he saw this show Shark Tank, which just happens to be a show that they rerun on, often at CNBC at night. And he thought, hey, that's cool. I should do a shark tank at my company. And this is going to upset even some of our CSL friends here because a lot of them love to do this. But I have two issues yeah. with that, right? One, shark tank, the show, is nothing like how venture capital works, right? I've done a number of deals with Mark Cuban. The way Mark acts on the show and the way Mark acts in a normal yeah, wow. yeah. venture deal are different. I often say... Shark Tank is as much like traditional VC as the show ER is like a normal emergency room, right? They are both made-for-TV drama, and you've got to be really yeah. careful what you learn from made-for-TV <laughs> drama. I would not right. feel comfortable walking into an emergency room and say like, well, you know, how much medical school experience do you have? None, but I've watched every episode of ER. I feel completely prepared to take care of you. <laughs> no one would feel good about that. I independent of that, though, there's this other problem, which is the way venture works for traditional startups in terms of how you finance them is completely different from the way corporate entrepreneurship projects get funded, right? Yeah, traditional right. VCs, an entrepreneur has literally often a thousand different options on people they can pitch for an idea. In a corporate setting, you might have two or three budgets you're pulling from. They're just completely different. And so when you're making these top-down pushes, you really wanna think about, okay, how is my approach similar or different for these projects? And who are the people I need to get to say yes, right? You, need, you typically need to get a lot of yeses in a corporate entrepreneurship setting. In a traditional entrepreneurship setting, you need to get one yes. Right. And we need to yeah. recognize heading into that, that these are, just, these are different decision-making processes. Therefore, you're going to pitch it differently. You're going to explain it differently, that kind of thing. There are certainly lessons that can be learned from traditional entrepreneurship in a corporate setting, but how you pitch and present is not one of them, in my opinion. Right, yeah, well, I, I worked with a company, uh, we worked with a company that 
was doing, they even called it a shark tank, but it was not modeled after the show. But it was that kind of those concepts of let's just make a real way where we can make it very lean and a lot of people can come up with with ideas and pitch them to us and we're going to pick some and fund them. Now, it's a, it's a great way for speed, agility to try to get some some things moving, but th- they already had their budgets for what they were going to call new to the world uh, opportunities, right? So it it fit that way. It just was a way for them to constructively get a lot of people in the company kind of thinking and promoting ideas and bringing them forward. So in a way, it sounds similar to the venture capitalist model, but it was always going to be uh, a corporate decision, right? It's going to have to buy in from key stakeholders, more than one, as you said. But that was a really effective program that that, that company uh, ran. Have you seen things like that? Yeah. So I think people do have success doing things like that. But what I would push back on is what's the alternative they're comparing that success mm, to, yeah, right? So, enough. and again, I don't know your client or the group that you talked about, and it may have worked great for them. But but when I talk to groups often that talk, tell me about these kind of programs that they run, right? I, I try to get a sense on, okay, what, what was the total cost in terms of human cost, executive sponsorship, events that you did to pull something like this off? And then I say like, well, what if you took that same amount of money and just told everybody, don't spend a bunch of time trying to create a cute PowerPoint deck to convince the executives that your idea is a good idea. Instead, go to a Starbucks and interview five people about your idea. And then I'm gonna give you this framework that you can use, which is not a PowerPoint framework, but it's actually a a rubric you can use to evaluate the feedback that you get from those. And I'm going to ask you to write up a three paragraph summary of what you found and why you believe this idea could be transformative for our business. And then I'm going to have the executives read that asynchronously on their own time and use that as new top of funnel for new, new initiatives. Right? I think what, what many companies would see is that will cost them less get them higher quality ideas and end up getting more people involved in the process because you're effectively involving everybody in it. Yeah. But, but the, but the challenge is what I just described. And and the reason I think companies don't do this enough. I mean, there are companies who do this. Adobe famously did this with the red box project, for example. But the reason you see a lot of companies not take the path I just laid out is because it feels really different than what they see when they do what I like to call corporate tourism which is put your executives on a plane or now on Zoom and have them go see how PayPal and Google work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it doesn't look like that, right? And it's like, okay, that that might be just fine because maybe that's not what you're, you're you, you, the things you're observing there may not actually be what you wanna pull back into your company, right? The, the, the lessons here might be getting customer feedback, getting everybody to think about new, new opportunities and giving them some, rigorous way to evaluate those. And actually, I think this is another area where there's a lot that can be learned, not from traditional entrepreneurship, but from traditional new product development, right? So I know you've worked with Robert Cooper for a long time, right? With the the stage gate process. Structured process, yep. That's right. And I think for these new, new projects, the structured process may need to be a little different, but it looks more like a stage gate process than it does like a venture process. 
Yeah, with a portfolio process around it. So I, I really like what you just described. Took it from, hey, it's a beauty pageant, right? It's kind of this competitive, I've got the most compelling voice and the best PowerPoints. You just took that right out, you, which is what the stage gate process tends to do, right? It, it equalizes things and uh, brings a lot of fairness to it for good selection. Right. And unfortunately, this is not the case in traditional entrepreneurship because you do right. need to pitch so many people. But the truth is true in traditional and corporate entrepreneurship. The quality of your PowerPoint is not indicative of the probability of success of that startup. Yeah, now, right. <laughs> it is indicative often, unfortunately, of your ability to get funded. That's why mm. traditional startups, much to my personal dismay, but I understand why we need to do this, spend a lot of money creating beautiful pitch decks, right? That's because you, you got to go pitch a lot of people and you're going to get a lot of no's and you want the quality of your deck to be quite compelling. But when it comes to corporate entrepreneurship, I think we have a chance to make the game much better, which is that we're evaluating the quality of the idea, not the quality of the pitch deck. And structured processes like StageGate do a really good job of that, in my opinion. I think what you're talking about, all the words you're saying are going to be very well received by this audience, because these are not the people who are going to to do it, the fancy decks and, and go out and get private funding. They're just not after that. They're trying to do it inside the company. So you're giving them some great suggestions. Sean, let's talk about you know the startup lab, right? So we're talking about entrepreneurship. You mentioned how entrepreneurship and startup are somewhat different. What's the Carnegie Mellon Startup Lab doing? How is that uh, engaging with companies? Yeah, so it's the, it's the corporate startup lab. Right. And so, the, yep. so some people think of those as like oxymorons, like jumbo shrimp. Right. But the, <laughs> the concept here is yeah. that these are corporates building startups. Right. Now, it's part of the overall entrepreneurship center at Carnegie Mellon. So our entrepreneurship center at Carnegie Mellon is called the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship. So Jim Schwartz, who's an alum of the school and the founder of Excel Partners, which is arguably the best or one of the best venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, he gave Carnegie Mellon a large gift to establish the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship. And under the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship, we actually have three separate but related initiatives. So we have our traditional high growth entrepreneurship. These are, you know, small teams coming together to start high tech, high growth startups. Uh, and some of them are high growth non-tech startups. We had someone do a greeting card business that's growing incredibly fast um, as an example, but most yeah. of them are high tech, high growth startups as you would expect. We have a program called Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition, which is predominantly MBAs going and buying, you know, 10 to $50 million businesses, transforming them and then turning around and flipping them in, in three to four years. And then we have the Corporate Startup Lab. So these are the three different initiatives. And the Corporate Startup Lab is all about helping these large companies figure out how to do entrepreneurship inside their organization. And so I do a lot across Schwartz, and I'm also the director and co-founder of the Corporate Startup Lab. Got it. So that's that's helping companies actually do it, right? You're, you're teaching them, you're guiding them, you're assisting them to help right. them actually get that going, right? We do it different ways, right? So, and, and you can see some of this. If you go to corporatestartuplab.com, you can see a little bit about what we do. But, but I like to think about we're doing it a number of different ways. One way we do it 
is that we do different kinds of events through the year to promote this mission of transformational innovation. So for example, we do a large event every November called the Corporate Entrepreneurship Forum. We bring in speakers, have hundreds of corporate execs who care about these topics come together and sort of talk about this for a few days. We do smaller private roundtables. You know, we had uh, about six different executives responsible for leading innovation inside Fortune 500 firms, each come in under what I call friend EA. So it's not really an NDA, but kind of let's pretend that yeah. we're going to try to keep this confidential, share notes on how to do it. So that's kind of our events part of this. We do specific programming uh, with some of the companies where they have specific research initiatives that we help them achieve. So for example, we partnered with United Healthcare Group's Optum. Uh, so United Healthcare is uh, a Fortune 6 company and Optum is kind of their technology group within that. Uh, we helped them create a thing called the Optum Startup Studio which was kind of a unique twist on corporates working with traditional startups together, right? So how do small startups work better with big corporates, for example, and, and how do we accelerate that? And I think especially in regulated industries like finance, healthcare, this is actually a really important topic. And then we do student initiatives where, you know, companies partner with our graduate students from Carnegie Mellon to work on specific innovation projects. And we have a couple of different versions of those student projects uh, that we do with the companies who are interested in, in kind of doing some type of corporate entrepreneurship activity uh, in partnership with grad students on campus. Wow, that's really exciting. I, I mean, that, that university is just an amazing university. I've, I've actually been on that campus. I was one of the ones I considered going to many, many years ago. Wow. <laughs> but ended up going somewhere else. But I was impressed with it then, and it's only gotten better. But So that was corporatestartuplab.com. That's right? right. That's how people can find that. You mentioned, you used the word industry in there. You were mentioning banking and a couple other industries. Are there industries that are more, I guess, mature in startup thinking or entrepreneurial thinking inside them? Yeah. So I'll answer that two ways. So I think the tech industry overall, so your your Amazon, Googles of the world, because of the rate of change of technology, I think they tend to have more competency in this than a lot of other areas. You know, earlier I mentioned the iPhone as an example of entrepreneurship before we had done any of this conversation about what I meant for, by entrepreneurship. Right. And my guess is most of your audience was like, oh yeah, of course, the iPhone, that was a, a really great entrepreneurship project. Well, Keep in mind, Apple was a big company before Apple introduced the iPhone. They're just a much bigger company today, right? So Amazon with AWS, much the same thing. Amazon was a big company before AWS. It's a much bigger company now, thanks to AWS, right? So I think in the tech field, uh, given they've sort of grown up in this environment where the pace of change is iterating really rapidly, it, it's a little more baked in there. Um, what I would say to people who don't think of themselves in the tech industry is if you don't think you're in the tech industry today, you will in the next couple of years. I remember I was meeting with the CEO of a large grocery chain. And as we were talking, uh, the CEO said, oh, well, like, I'm just so glad I don't have to compete with Amazon. And then uh, a few months later, Amazon bought Whole Foods and I'm sure that CEO feels very different today about yeah. if they need to compete with Amazon, right? So so if you don't think of those as peers, you will shortly for sure. So that's that's point number one. The second thing is I do think some of the regulated industries, 
finance, banking, healthcare, medical devices, right? Some of those spaces, I think, are actually some of the, the most ripe for transformational innovation. And the reason is that it's been harder for traditional entrepreneurs to solve a lot of those problems because there are so many landmines that if you don't understand mm. the regulated environment that you're in, it makes it really hard to actually make progress against those. And so again, if you sort of look across the landscape, it's like, oh, there's a lot of products that entrepreneurs have imagined, but we haven't actually created yet because of these regulatory constraints. And if we can help these banking, finance, healthcare, medical device companies, chemical companies kind of go through and, and understand how to do this kind of thing, I think we can can kind of flatten that disparity a bit. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, uh, you know, Sean, it's been a great discussion. I, I did want to uh, call attention. You have a you have a podcast yourself called Agile Giants, and I know it's it's kind of centered on this this whole thing about creating startups in a company, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we're trying to yeah. talk to people who are doing corporate entrepreneurship, and we we tend to have three basic categories of the folks we have on, and you can find Agile Giants kind of wherever you listen to podcasts, but. About a third of them are what I would call academic thought leaders. So we talk to people from academia who study these topics and, and, and try to take the conversation out of the ivory tower and into the boardroom, right? So these folks write really interesting papers that a lot of people don't read and we take the gems from those, bring the authors right. on and talk to them about that. That's one third. Another third are people who are leading innovation projects inside these large companies. Right. So what does it look like to be a corporate entrepreneur inside the walls? And then our third area is actually corporate venture capitalists, because we're also increasingly mm -hmm. interested in this partner model between traditional startups and big corporates. And I think CVCs are are an interesting lens into how that works. Yeah, I know you and I have had some discussions about that as well. And I, I really like that program. I think there's great things going to come out. of it. Well, certainly, Sean, if people want to follow you, they could, they could check out your podcast, Agile Giants. They can check out your book, Science of Growth. They can kind of check you out on the corporatestartuplab.com. Uh, How else can they follow you? I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter, happy to connect on LinkedIn, and generally just just always happy to have have conversations and and hear what folks are working on so feel free to reach out uh corporate startup lab website has a nice contact us form as well and then i have a little personal web page seanamorati.com where you can reach out through the contact me page there as well yeah i think that's how we first connected uh yeah we'll have links to those in the show notes uh sean any last thing you'd like to share anything on top of your mind this is all we should have said that before we say goodbye I would just say, because I know who your audience is, and I, and I think it's, a, it's an important part of the world that we're all looking down today, which is that there are a lot of problems that the world needs solved, and this is not a political statement. I, if you're on the right or the left, it feels like the one thing that everybody's aligned on is that there's a lot of problems that need solved. And, and I would just encourage folks in the companies that are listening to this podcast to think about the ways they can be part of that solution by helping their companies be more entrepreneurial. And I know that's something that they can do in partnership with you guys, which is awesome and just would encourage them to, to lean in and, and try to do that given the world really needs more entrepreneurs today. Yeah, boy, I, it's hard for me to follow that, but I would, I would echo, we would love to talk with uh, companies about that for sure. And 
That was a great way to sum it up, Sean. So really appreciate you joining us today and, and uh, have a great rest of your summer, I guess, before you're, you're you must be getting ready busy. It's going to start up soon now for you. So enjoy what, what little time you have left. <laughs> thanks, Bob. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, I sure did. And uh, have a great week and we look forward to talking to you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.